Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hi, Julia. It's episode 36 of The Pick List. Have you had a good week so far? Hello, Laura. Yes, a very good week. Thank you. Um, another busy week of writing for me. The deadline is looming later this week. So um, yes, I'm chained to my desk and churning out a lot of copy. How have you been? Yeah, good week. Thank you. You'll be ready for a nice G&T by the time the weekend comes. I know that. Um, yeah, I'm having a good week, actually. I've started a, a chunk of consultancy working with Global Meat Alliance, which uh, I jointly chair, ready uh, or getting ready for the UN Food Systems Summit. So uh, we're running our first UN dialogue uh, next month. So we're just getting arranged for that. So it's very exciting. Um, on the podcast this week, we have a great guest. We have indeed. We're joined by Jack Hamilton, who is CEO of MASH Direct. Uh, Jack is a brilliant guest who brought us some really interesting insight into how MASH Direct has experienced the past 12 months, how they've navigated the pandemic, what shopper behavior changes they've seen. And of course, he's also picked some really, really interesting articles for us to discuss from The Economist and The Atlantic. Should we start the show? Jack, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Julia. It's such a pleasure to be here with uh, with you and Laura. Why don't you briefly introduce yourself and tell our listeners who you are, what you do, and how you're connected to the food industry? No worries. I'm Jack Hamilton. I'm the CEO here at MASH Direct. Um, We are a sixth-generation family farm here on the the farm that I'm standing on here in uh, Cumber in County Down. And what we do is we grow the veg, we steam cook it, we pack it, we do it the whole way through and have it, have it branded on shelves. We, uh, we started back in 2004 uh, and we're now, uh, and we started supplying into two local convenience stores back then, our two local sea stores here in Kilay and Kalinchy. Um, we've sent, since gone from there to supply uh, over 10,000 stores right the way around UK and Ireland, as well as exporting uh, from the farm here as well. Great. And you brought such interesting articles for us to discuss, including about some interesting changes to shopper behavior as well. Before we jump into those, I'd just love to quiz you a little bit about what the past 12 months have been like for you, what changes you have seen in in shopper behavior in the categories that you're in, and what your expectations are for 2021. Wow. Um, Yeah, it's been a a really challenging year for uh, for everyone. I mean, farming is one of those things where everyone is eternal optimists in our industry because you have to be um you've just got to simply go up you know, the weather's gonna be better tomorrow and we're all gonna um uh, keep going i mean it's uh it's been a challenge i mean, suppose the the main things for us in the last 12 months were uh, fundamental to us the health and safety of our team uh you know while running a factory here lots of people have had their challenges so we're really uh really happy and and proud to say that we've had no cluster cases here on site and everyone's got their health uh, which is the the most important thing uh, for for us generally in the industry. It was a it was a really crazy time to try and track and try and understand what was happening out there. You know, from panic buying right at the start, and you know, potatoes being one of the things that for some reason was absolutely flying off the shelves. And I wish I had the insight to know 
exactly what was driving those consumer behaviors in the first few weeks that were now just starting to overlap, which is going to be really interesting for the like for like comparisons in 2021. Uh, so this is uh, just getting into, into that uh, time period now. So we went from there into kind of the most strange news articles dictating consumer behavior. I mean, I think for us, when we saw the really big, biggest shift of everything was Boris going into hospital. Uh, that really changed the way we saw our sales go. Suddenly, all of a sudden, people didn't really want to be out in supermarkets and people took it a lot more seriously. And it seemed to be that instant we saw a direct impact uh, with, uh, with a bit of a slowdown. Uh, obviously, food service for us, we supply into food service. So that stopped very quickly. We were able to pivot into e-commerce, so that more than made up for it. And then we are basically by the end of the year, with uh, all the change we made here, we were back in growth again. Uh, by the end of the year. And that was mainly driven through consumer behavior, looking for provenance, uh, wanting to know where their food came from, uh, wanting more local food, and um, as well as that consumers focusing on health. So focusing on fresh, convenient vegetables, uh, which kept us uh, kept us very busy. So we created uh, 40 new jobs uh, through the whole thing as well here, uh, here on the farm. So it's, uh, it's been a hectic year. Uh, and what we're, we, what 2021 is going to look like, we don't really know, but we've hired uh, three new people into our NBD team who are here to tell me exactly what we're looking at. Um, and yeah, they've got a, they're a brilliant team who've just brought on. And basically what we're looking at is how the kind of post-COVID restaurant kitchens are going to look uh, when they can't have quite as many people in, uh, in the restaurants cooking. So they're going to need some of their preparation to be done in advance. And we're anticipating a lot of de-skilling of restaurants, especially in tight city spaces. So we're, uh, we're looking into that and we're helping out a lot of restaurants as we stand to help food service get back in its feet with uh, kitchens being in a limited capacity. That's so interesting. And um, I, I know we'll have an opportunity to dive into some of these themes in a little bit more detail later in our discussion as well. We also want to quiz you a little bit on your reading habits, though, because, of course, the pick list is all about highlighting and sharing interesting finds from across the food media and the national media. Tell us a bit about what publications you read on a regular basis and how you keep up to date with what's happening in the industry. For, for me, keeping up uh, keeping up with the news just means keeping up with, I think, a lot of the same publications that listeners and viewers of the show will be used to. Uh, the Grocer, Food Manufacturer, Fresh Produce Journal, uh, here, Irish Farmers Journal as well, uh, as well as all the national press, just seeing what's going on in the food world. Um, where we do, I mean, wh- where we are in this part of the world, we've got a slight advantage as well in that because... Northern Ireland is so focused on the food industry and it's such a big market here that our local press is really good for keeping up to date on general food news. So the Belfast Telegraph, the Irish News, the Irish Times are all fantastic. You know, the business section is dominated by the stories going on in the food press, uh, which is fantastic. And then, of course, keeping up to date on LinkedIn, on Twitter, uh, understanding what's going on there and having lists through there. was actually um, keeping up to date with Julia's Twitter is where I saw... uh, the trim when the, the weekly email list started coming out, which has then brought me on to the pick list as well. So it all all feeding in nicely. And I definitely steal a lot of ideas from both of those and pass them off as articles that I've just casually come across myself as if I'm reading all of these publications. I mean, I think like the, the, those kind of weekly, daily email lists going out has been a real change in journalism, which makes it so easy for people in my position to pretend like we're keeping up. Like, you know, there's the 
Jack Blanchard, who did Politico back in the day and stuff like that, I can pretend like I know what's happening in Westminster and with the trim and with the pick list. I can pretend like I'm completely up to date with the food industry as well. Fantastic. We love to hear that. Glad to be of service. Now, Jack, tell us about your first pick for us. Yeah, my first pick came from uh, came from the Economist this week. Um, it's an article on uh, it's called "Digital Engagement Is Shaping Manufacturing," um, and I find it interesting because they're taking it kind of one step further uh, than where we'd normally anticipate that goes. I mean, there's the normal stories uh, in around how much e-commerce uh, is shaping uh, is shaping behaviours, which uh, the article gets into, and then it says, "Yeah, you know, there's more obviously." Uh, business to consumer uh, activity, which is meaning that everything's getting a little bit more personalized and it gets into pet food and explaining how the personalization is coming. But then it gets into the step after that, which I think will be really interesting looking into the future. And that's where the line starts to get blurred between product and service. And essentially what it's talking about is consumer to manufacturer information, where you've got big data coming through, you've got AI getting involved. And essentially, it's giving real-time information from consumers back to the manufacturer so that the innovation process process and manufacturer are happening at a hugely accelerated speed. Um, and what it talks about, uh, one of the examples it gives, which is not, not necessarily the food industry, but I thought was really interesting, is it talks about robot vacuum cleaners in China. Uh, and talking a lot about how this is all being driven out of China. And essentially, the, the vacuum cleaners were initially pitched to people who were making a lot more money, you know, high net worth people. And they actually found that demand for these products was coming from people on much lower incomes. So they then used that information to feed through to the manufacturers and say, if you can manufacture this for a much more affordable price, uh, there's a much bigger market out there for you. So the manufacturer then changed and it started selling the product before the manufacturer had even completed the process of manufacturing it. So the pre-orders were already there and the manufacturers already being led by the consumer data. And I found that fascinating you know, for, for us to learn from the food industry perspective to say, if you can master consumer data and you can really understand what consumers are looking for, you could even accelerate the NPD process to give the retailers peace of mind to say, look, we can already prove the demand is there and we can start to make things way in advance of when the anticipation is there. I mean, it's it's kind of dream ticket out there for NPD teams, but I find it really interesting that it's actually happening now with AI in China. I love the article. And I was really intrigued by the way it started off talking about pet food as well. And uh, and the fact that, you know, all of the articles China driven that uh, there was data, was it just last week that we've bought over 3 million more pets uh, in the last 12 months in the UK. And, and there'll be a huge market for personalization in that and then how this is led. And I was just really intrigued as well about how I, I wonder, and I was keen to pick your brains really, Jack, do you think as consumers we're more open to sharing data? Because stuff like this, it feels quite okay, you know, to talk about you maybe your food habits or as you say you know the, the vacuum cleaner example in the article that you know that the mass public are just used to it we're on social platforms that are really our data is getting shared anyway so that there's maybe not the barriers that used to be and now the technology is in place do, do, do you maybe see that as well that i guess it's more open and the example you brought from the article absolutely i think consumers are really open to sharing their data and sharing their information perhaps maybe too open uh, to share information at times, certainly with social media. Um, you know, that, that's something that retailers are, are 
very accustomed to, you know, having the EPOS data or even having done Humvee or any of that information, um, having it all come through and, you know, and uh, qualitative and quantitative information. Um, so I think it's something that consumers opt into, uh, whether or not they're fully aware of how much information they're consciously giving away or how much they're giving away just through you know, the links they're clicking on on, their, on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok, you know, I'm not quite sure if the consumer is fully aware of how much information they're giving away, but it's certainly out there. Um, and with that information, then manufacturers are able to, to make products that fit in uh, more with their lifestyle. I think it'll be interesting to see what will happen with consumer sentiment around privacy and, and sharing information. My sense is that as long as there is a fair exchange of value, you know, yes, you're sharing your data, but A, you have visibility on who you're sharing the data with and to what level, and you get a benefit out of this because now I might be able to tailor my products and services more to you. That I think is th that works. I think if there's a shared exchange of value, you, you can make that work. I think it's more problematic if, as a consumer, you feel like your data is feeding into a black box and the manufacturer is getting a vastly better NPD process out of this, but but you're not getting the the benefit back. Um, I suppose a lot of this though is 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 about sort of looking at bigger trends. And I was interested to see what to what extent you have found that doing e-commerce gives you new data and different levels of, of data to then inform your NPD processes. Have you been able to, to start doing anything like that? Are you seeing things in, in that data that you wouldn't be getting from other sources of data, for example? You know, we're seeing consumers behave differently than how we ever thought uh, our customers were. Um, we, you know, we're, our, our name is Mass Direct and the vast majority of products that we make and sell are, are you know, started off as mash products, and now we're seeing uh, through the through the pandemic, especially, we saw much more of a polarization of how people consume throughout the week. So the start of the week's being more on the the healthier, the root veggies, the carrot and parsnip, and those kind of products, and then towards the end of the week, moving more gradually into beer butter chips and beer butter onion rings, and those are more indulgent products. And we're selling through um, through major retailers, and we're selling through convenience stores. We don't necessarily understand that pattern uh, and see that happening through. We're able to see that really clearly with the patterns of how people are buying veg boxes from us. Um, and we wouldn't have had that, that insight without the direct-to-consumer um, avenue that we launched there last year. Julia, what's your first pick this week? My first pick this week is from The Telegraph, and it's an article titled Iceland Goes Up Market with New Fresh Food Chain. This is about Swift, the new convenience store format that Iceland is launching. It's a really interesting development in its own right. I also had to pick it because the first store is opening in Newcastle this week, and it's literally about 15 minutes from where I live. So there's a strong local angle in this story for me. Um, we're recording this on Wednesday, so it's before the store is um has opened and I haven't seen it, but I will be going over the weekend and I'm really excited to see what, uh, what they've done with the store. Because there are several interesting angles to this story which this uh, Telegraph article explores. What we know about Swift at this stage is quite limited, but we know it's a convenience format. It's a much smaller format than your typical Iceland store, um, but it will nevertheless carry about 3,000 SKUs. Um, it will have fresh as well as frozen ranges. There will be alcohol and tobacco, as you would expect in, in a convenience store. 
and food to go and ready meals will be a big focus. Um, there's also some interesting speculation in this piece about what they're going to be doing with checkouts. We've obviously seen a lot of innovation recently about around that whole checkout experience and also whether they'll be offering home delivery from those stores. The bit that really caught my eye though is the store layout. How this store will look in practice I think will be very very interesting. Iceland is describing the store layout as novel and something that will break down traditional divides between frozen and chilled food which I think sounds really intriguing. Because the frozen category, of course, has done very well over the past 12 months, um, but it's for many years tried to attract a wider range of shoppers for a wider range of shopping missions, and it's tried to make the frozen aisle more of a destination in store. And that has proved really difficult, not least because frozen is typically right at the back of the store. Um, so with some of the big lucrative shopper missions like lunch to go, meal for tonight, anything that's a little bit more inspiration and impulse driven, it's been really tough for the frozen guys to get a look in, you know, because it's basically all happening at the other end of the store in the chilled aisles. And I think that's particularly true in convenience. You know, if you go to your average supermarket run convenience store on the high street, it's all optimized around food for now, food for later, and it's chilled, chilled, chilled. And somewhere, you know, at the back of the store, you might get a freezer cabinet, but that's about it. So is Iceland potentially going to be creating an environment where frozen can compete much more effectively with chilled for some of those shop emissions? And then in turn, what's the knock-on effect going to be on NPD potentially, but also the way that other convenience formats will evolve? Because this is such a big time for uh, convenience, a big time of change around shopper habits. And there's a lot of uncertainty around what will happen to shopper behavior once lockdown restrictions start lifting, particularly in categories like food to go. And I suppose if demand remains a little bit unpredictable, there will be big concerns about waste in some of these categories. So getting frozen to play a bigger role in those shopper missions in those categories could, could be an interesting solution to that problem. But yeah, so I'm, I'm very, very intrigued to see exactly what they're going to do and practice and whether, you know, breaking down those barriers between fresh and frozen and, and chilled and frozen is going to open up these categories to, to frozen brands much more than is currently the case. Jack, what did you make of it? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really interested to hear uh, your thoughts when you get into the store as well to see see what they're revealing. It's a really interesting concept to launch a store and give very little information on kind of what it's going to look like. And there's lots of teasing coming out. So it's exciting to hear a new concept out there. And it, it'll be really interesting to see if they're positioning themselves, if Iceland are positioning Swift to to go for shoppers and try to attract people who maybe would have gone to a Tesco or even a Waitrose or if they're positioning themselves to maybe go up, you know, go for consumers who maybe would have shopped in Aldi or Little otherwise to see what type of market they're going into. Um, it sounds like they're trying to get people to, to trade up, which is interesting because they've got their food warehouse concept, which is doing really well. Uh, so we be interested to see what, uh, what this new move is uh, and to see if it's something where they're looking to increase the presence of the Iceland owned label or if they're going to use brands to come in so that they can compete uh, against uh, some of the other uh, more upmarket retailers out there. 
I would agree with that, Jack. And when I saw Richard Walker's tweet about this a uh, um, few days ago, I thought he was actually stood outside a quick fit getting his tyre changed because <laughs> the branding is uh, was uh, is so blue and bold, very unlike Iceland or Food Warehouse. I, I actually thought, is he getting a tyre change? Like, no, he's not. They've bought it. And then I thought, oh, they've bought this with a view to rebrand it into an Iceland type format so the fact my, my initial reaction was all oh, right oh, oh okay that's great and then as I read the article I thought brilliant this is in Longbenton Julie is going to be there in Newcastle <laughs> like a shot so we can have a, a full debrief uh, and, and I thought a really interesting location to choose really uh, as well for for the the trial format and really interesting that it's not overtly the the Iceland footprint is it within they've got so much goodwill in industry and from a good base of customers which they've grown significantly over the last 12 months to go with a totally different name and a totally different look and feel it is is really fascinating and 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 ballsy and and they are aren't they and we like that about them (laughs) Laura what's your first pick for us Uh, My first pick this week is from the Sunday Times, uh, and this is about Amazon. And the the reason I picked this, we've we've obviously heard so much about Amazon over the uh, the last couple of weeks uh, and and, and their uh, new format in Ealing. Um, And it's the news the Sunday Times have broken about Amazon uh, trademarking Amazon Pharmacy, uh, and they've uh, put an application into the Intellectual Property Office. And basically the Times is saying that is this signalling Amazon moving into um, the prescription market? And they've disrupted the 300 billion dollar uh, industry in the US. The um, industry in the US is quite different in terms of uh, pharmacy market. It's not regulated the same way that the UK is. Um, and they trade very much on, on, on speed of delivery on the online service. In the article, it talks about in America, Amazon have a direct challenger to major players, Walgreens, as we know, owned by Boots and CVS, uh, that they've heavily challenged and have discounts of up to 80% for generic drugs and 40% for branded medicines. The article then goes on to talk about, unsurprisingly, service. And this is one of the reasons I wanted to pick this. And, you know, we're going to see this time and time again over different retailers. You can get you know, so much more online now, but what is the point of going to a store? And I suppose that's very much the same for a pharmacy. And there's there's a a quote from the Association of Independent Multiple Pharmacies talking about, you know, you need to diagnose people properly. And if people have long-term conditions, it's really important uh, that they talk to a pharmacist first. And I think the NHS have really pushed, haven't they, over the last decade or so, putting pharmacists at the, the, the front line of healthcare, particularly in the UK. So the article then also goes on to say the online pharmacy uh, services in the UK uh, have grown significantly by Pharmacy to You, which uses a subscription model and has over half a million customers. And they posted sales of almost 80 million uh, to the end of March last year. So I guess I was interested from the Amazon perspective and their march never stops. They keep on going and uh, and, and Jeff Bezos's day one mentality is, is still very much there. And also more broadly into the service element and the, the requirements of, of people, be that in pharmacies and retail more broadly. What are your thoughts, Jack? And, you know, will small independent and, and bigger players like Boots still have very much a role to play? Or actually, if you're a an individual and, you, and you've been prescribed something, actually it's easy because you're going to get it at your door in two days if you're an Amazon Prime customer. Yeah, I, th- I think what it comes down to is it, it, there's the big, there's two different consumer decisions when you're going into the place. I mean, if, if it's about convenience, 
I mean, Amazon's going to win every single time. I mean, they, they are just, they are the specialists in it. Speed, convenience, as you say, it's going to be there the next day. It's exciting. That's brilliant. You know, if you have an issue, you can get something really quickly. But the, I suppose the other side of pharmacies um, is that you might be going into something a little bit more private and you want that link to the rest of your Amazon data and coming up in all of your recommendations for the next couple of weeks or for the rest of your life. You know, I, I think the privacy side might deter people. And you know, the other thing that pharmacies are able to offer is having a specialist in there. I said, no, there's, there's services that they're able to provide that Amazon you know, could do in certain ways, but it's just different from the personal touch. I mean, as, as you said, I mean, US pharmacies are dramatically different and would look a lot more, you know, to us, you know, in this part of the world would look a lot more like a supermarket uh, rather than a pharmacy. So I think that the, the services that pharmacies offer in the UK and Ireland is a little bit different. So I think in that sense, Amazon might struggle to compete with, uh, with them on that level. Aside from the consumers who are just looking for pure convenience, I think that stuff will be will be taken over by Amazon. But for all those additional services, I think you need the human uh, human interaction, human touch that you get from from walking into one of those other chains that you mentioned. I don't know. I think I think this is a sector that's really ripe for disruption. And I agree that the point you raise about um, privacy concerns and you know how does my prescription data potentially feed into my wider Amazon purchase history? I think that's definitely something they'd want to be really, really clear on. But I think there's we're seeing quite a bit of um, a, a sort of evolution of these types of services already. You know, you can now get online dermatology services that are actually really good and they do consultation over Zoom and they give you a personalized prescription. So I think that element of, of personal service and advice, absolutely, that is part of what we expect when we go to a chemist. But that doesn't necessarily need to be store based. And I think if Amazon combine what they're offering here, you know, the, the slick logistics that, that we would expect from Amazon, but then perhaps also link that with some of these consultation services that are running online, I think there is quite a bit of disruption to be done because a lot of I think a lot of the shopping experience or, or general sort of service experience of going to chemists is quite patchy. You know, some are great and you get fantastic level of service and you go into really nice stores as well. And it's a pleasant experience. But some of these stores are really tired and they're tiny and the range isn't that great. And if it's a fairly transactional interaction where you're just pick, picking up your prescription why wouldn't you get it delivered to your door? Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't. I, I can see quite a bit of potential. So it'll be really, really interesting to see if they um, if they do actually decide to go ahead with this in the UK. Jack, tell us about your second article. From the Atlantic. Um, and it's from, uh, I think the journalist has been featured on, uh, on the podcast for it, Amanda Mull, uh, who wrote a piece uh, a few maybe a couple of months ago as well uh, that was featured on so her article this week is that she said uh, the article is called no real reason to eat three meals per day um she's pretty good on the big trend stuff that's going on over uh, over in america and basically she's trying to break down um what's going on over there uh following on the pandemic and saying that the pandemic habits that people have formed around eating are starting to develop in a way that's going to change how Americans consume food or a lot of Americans consume food, uh, even when people go back to work. Uh, it's an interesting and a broad historical argument uh, that brings up, you know, why do we eat three meals a day? And she's saying it's a lot to do with the industrialization uh, that took place over 150 years ago. 
uh, that becomes very ingrained and hasn't been disrupted in a long time. And saying that because of the pandemic, people are eating at home all the time. And that for people who should have been eating little and often and have maybe different eating behaviors, different patterns, uh, that they have been onto the three meals a day system because that's the way their work was set up. And now they're onto this different system that they're going to start to change their consumer behaviors, which then can changes what uh, what style of food that they're going to eat. And it's making the case that you know it's going to change grocery retail as well as restaurant. And I know it's something that we are focusing on here is looking more and more at little dishes, looking at what people are going to eat and look at what people are going to uh, graze on uh, in the veg world, rather than necessarily having you know for us as a as a side dish company to reflect on. It's uh, us reflecting, what are we sitting on the side of? And will it now be a case where people are consuming maybe four to five side dishes rather than having uh, one big main in the middle of it with the sides and having you know the difference between if people are consuming one big evening meal or even one big meal in the middle of the day, where does their big meal sit? Or even does that big meal uh, become the central focus of the day? So we should bring all of this to the fore. I mean, it doesn't really have any answers to it, uh, but throws up a lot of questions. I love this article. It really resonated with me because I want to make a, a, a revelation here. I don't eat breakfast anymore. So for the last two years, I've stopped eating breakfast, really, because I'm sat at home all the time. And if I have three meals a day, I'm going to be the size of an absolute house. So I think if I don't start eating till lunchtime, then I can pretty much get away with eating what I want, although I still have collected a few pounds over, over lockdown. And so it, I, I was really intrigued by this. And other uh, comments it made in the article, as you've alluded to, was about biohack, bio biohacking and how biohacking really is the, the cool term for yeah, not, not having breakfast and and I don't know if it's just me but I'm noticing a lot more on Instagram in particular folks talking about you know how to I don't know lower your blood glucose levels how to as you talk about there Jack about having different meals stopping eating as the article says at 6 p.m and you know making sure that you're getting good sleep and all of this protecting your gut and all of this connecting with that I guess the golden thread to what we've been chatting about so far is data we will we've got better data because a lot of us are sat with um, Apple watches or what, whatever devices around our wrists so knowing how we've slept what, what time we've eaten you may be putting into my fitness pal you're using all this stuff so I just feel as well we're just so much more aware of what we're putting in our bodies and maybe yeah I, I'm still don't worry I'm still eating plenty of biscuits so there's, there's still a lot of that going on but the you I'm just probably more aware of it and it's really interesting this article is shaking things up because I'm thinking well what I don't need to be eating the carbs on the morning because I'm I'm going to save and have them in the afternoon instead. What do you think, Julia? Are you still eating breakfast? I am still eating breakfast. I'm loyal right. to my my porridge. Um, but I think that's so interesting. And, and what you were just saying about skipping breakfast, because I, I suppose, um, I, I mean, I, I don't know whether this is sort of part of an intermittent fasting kind of regime or, or something like that, which obviously feeds into the sort of biohacking side. But yeah, I guess once you sort of start challenging some of these conventions, maybe you don't need to stick to that pattern. But also, you know, company like yours, Jack, can suddenly start playing at breakfast potentially, because if you're starting to kind of redefine what you're expecting at, at certain um, at, for certain meals, you know, this idea that there are specific breakfast foods, I mean, that is sort of, you know, a, a relatively modern invention and, and something that's sort of largely branding and, and marketing driven. So, yeah, I, I think the idea that, that sort of gets explored in this article that once you start shaking up your habits, almost anything is up for grabs. Um, it'll be fascinating to see how 
much of that actually does stick. I mean, I think the idea that, I don't know, perhaps it's slightly different in, in the US, but the idea that we're going to dramatically move away from, from that sort of three meals a day pattern feels a little bit far-fetched. But um, I think it's a it's a really, really interesting argument. And I can see that there would be pockets of consumer groups where actually the, the behavior looks very, very different to what we've seen in the past. Yeah, I mean, it definitely for us in the, in the food industry, it seems really strange because the food industry is one of those ones that's had to, you know, certainly food manufacturing, keep going. So we've all stuck to so many of our patterns and then to suddenly see people saying, oh, well, well, you've been doing this, we've been, you know, everything over here has changed really dramatically. It kind of catches us in the back foot going, oh, wow, has the, you know, when, when things reopen, is a lot going to be really different? Or are we reading a lot of press that's telling us maybe things are going to be different and actually we're going to go back and things are going to be relatively the same? Julia, what's your second pick this week? My second pick this week is from The Spoon and it's called Could Food Companies Cash In on NFTs? NFTs are non-fungible tokens and they have been everywhere of late. Lots and lots of media coverage because a digital artist known as Beeple has just sold an NFT through an auction at Christie's for $69 million. And I thought, well, I've been reading quite a bit about NFTs. I really don't get it. This is quite a difficult concept to get your head around. So I was grateful that The Spoon decided to write about this and explore uh, the significance of NFTs in a food context, which meant I had an excuse to talk to you both about this. Um, NFTs, as The Spoon explains, are a way to use blockchain technology to create scarcity and value around digital goods. It's not a million miles from something like a limited edition, but for digital stuff. Um, you basically have digital files that are secured via blockchain and that can be used to verify ownership of a work of digital art, for example. And if you are the artist, you can use those NFTs to limit the number of original digital items that are then available for purchase. The tricky bit, I suppose, is the fact that anyone can still make copies of that artwork for free. And because it's digital, those copies are essentially going to be just as good as the original. They just don't come with that validation that says you own one of those validated uh, copies. Uh, so in many ways, what you're getting with the NFT um, system is, as the article says, simply bragging rights, um, which doesn't feel massively intuitive if you are not immersed in, in in that side of the art market or even that side of the technology market. It certainly doesn't feel massively intuitive to me. But the reason the spoon is thinking about NFTs in a food context is because Taco Bell has released its own digital art via NFTs. Um, and so that's prompted the author of the article, Chris Albrecht, to wonder if there are perhaps wider applications for NFTs in and around food. And he's identified four areas where he thinks uh, they could potentially play a part around sort of brand building and brand awareness and potentially marketing efforts. Um, the first area he identifies is recipes. So he's raising the question, you know, could there be a market for limited edition original recipes from famous chefs, for example, that could then be sold via NFTs? Menus are another option he flags up. There is apparently a thriving market of menu collectors out there. I wasn't aware of that. You know, again, people collecting physical items. Could NFTs open this up to a wider market and allow restaurants to sell digital originals of special menus they've created, for example? Then there's high-end food photography. Again, you can get physical prints that fetch some fairly high prices at the moment. 
Um, could you potentially have collectors looking to acquire digital rights or could you use NFTs to be used to make these images more affordable to a wider range of people than is possible with the physical prints? And finally, wine. Um, he raises a quite an interesting prospect of wineries and vineyards potentially creating digital corks that could accompany um, particularly fancy bottles of wine. So you have that sort of added element, something extra special to kind of um, reinforce the specialness of, of your purchase, if you will. I have to say, as fascinating as it is, none of it still makes intuitive sense to me. I am still looking at this going, I don't understand why someone would be spending money on this, but I think it's really interesting to explore how some of this technology could play out in our industry. And it's clearly captured the public imagination. Um, and I think very interesting to see that a brand like Taco Bell has jumped on this. It's a publicity stunt, of course, but it does take a pretty switched on marketing team to be able to identify something like this and then, you know, be able to react so quickly and release your own digital art via NFTs. Um, they've managed to get loads of publicity as a result as well and position themselves around a cutting edge topic, I guess, that they wouldn't normally be associated with. So um, yes, fascinating, but I have to say I'm still probably as confused as I was before. Jack, what did you make of it? I have to say, I hadn't heard a huge amount about uh, about NFTs until the last couple of weeks. And then all of a sudden there seems to be this, this huge buzz around it. I mean, I, I understand, I think the basic premise, which to me is like collecting football stickers when you're a kid and, you know, it's you've got the shinies and you've got the ones that you can't replicate and you know it, it all makes sense and then when it comes to this this level whenever people are spending that kind of money on art or on jack dorsey's first tweet it just seems i, I don't get that I, it just seems to have gone to a level that's beyond and i think when it comes to the food industry uh food and drink in particular it's all about you know, the it's all about the consumption and it's all about having that moment of happiness when you're eating the food or enjoying the food and don't get me out you know don't get me wrong instagram's amazing for pictures of people enjoying food and i suppose what they're getting the um the, the credence they're getting out of that and the the added value is the exclusivity of being seen to be in that restaurant consuming that food i'm not sure how nfts can replicate that i'm sure somebody will find a way to uh, to monetize it I, I just struggle to see how NFTs can replicate the actual the, the joy of eating food and the exclusivity that comes with some food and wine around the world. I mean, I, the digital cork idea, is there is there any way to replicate having the physical presence of the cork in your hand by having a digital cork? I, I don't know. There's just something that, to me, coming from, you know, I, I suppose a farm background here, there's something tangible about food that I just don't think can be uh, can be in any way recreated. Laura, what's your second pick? My second pick this week is from the Retail Gazette and it's news about Pret. Uh, Pret strikes a deal to sell baked treats in Tesco stores and it's had a quite a bit of coverage actually uh, the, this week and they've struck this deal to get frozen croissants uh, for baking at home sold across 700 of, uh, of Tesco stores uh, and there's also talk in the article about uh, dressings and sauces are under consideration to be sold through the supermarkets going forwards uh, and it talks about this is a deal to uh, adapt Pret 
threat to a new normal and counteract the uh, lockdown effects from the fact that Pret's hoping to win new customers uh, ahead of planned uh, sites to be opened in suburban areas, uh, I guess, in the forthcoming months. Last September, Pret uh, launched a subscription service for drinks, which allows customers to have drinks prepared five times uh, a day for uh, £20 a month. And I guess one of the reasons I, I uh, picked this article, that we've had news this week of uh, Thornton stores not going to reopen uh, after um, lockdown and uh, when restrictions lift and uh, Greg's have played heavily in the um, uh, retail space putting their products into frozen into the supermarkets and, and uh, Pizza Express have done similar. Um, Thornton's have done it in such a heavy way has that actually devalued their brand and do they need to reopen their stores and I guess that was my, my same thinking for Prep really I suppose they need to do this they need to mix up their portfolio and, and, and to get some more of a retail footing and it's always that balancing act isn't it about how far do you go and do you go as far as Thornton's have and lose that exclusivity and you can pick up a box of Thornton's chocolates in your local off license now and uh, rather than going to a dedicated store and they don't need those anymore and will this feel so different and also I guess me I'm the other reason I picked it I'm a massive Pret fan so me saying I haven't done breakfast for a year I haven't done breakfast because I haven't been near a Pret I think that's probably the reason so I'd be picking up a croissant and a, and a bit of porridge from Pret do I want to be going to the frozen section and baking them in my oven at home so it threw up a, a lot of questions really and it's about getting that balance right what are your thoughts Jack and how far should brands be going in terms of giving their name to products in a supermarket when they're a, a food service uh, retailer at heart yeah Laura I mean I, I, I'm, I'm entirely with you I'm a huge Pratt fan I suppose I'm living uh, I, I lived in uh, in the south of England for for seven years and then moved back to Northern Ireland again. So uh, I'm I'm well accustomed to missing Pret and I've been missing it for quite a long time. Um, so I, I'm completely with you on that. Um, whether or not it'll carry through, I mean, one of the things I thought was interesting is the products that they're going to do in the in the supermarkets. Having frozen croissants, I mean, definitely. I mean, I, I when I think of Pret, I think of croissants definitely. Um, but it's not getting into their their core goods, and they're already doing their coffee in a sense elsewhere. I'd be interested to see just how their their coffee has been performing, and if it's something that they want to go forward with after on the other end of this, do they want to keep uh, doing that? And does it start to devalue their brand a bit? I think it's a really interesting uh, a really interesting point because their their brand. You know, for, I think uh, Julia would agree. You know, everyone in this call is a big fan of Pret whether or not that's replicated by frozen croissants, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, it'd be, in, it'd be interesting to see how they get on. You see other brands that really successfully, I think Nando's is, are, is an example of someone who's moved into the grocery section, hasn't devalued them. It's actually increased their brand presence and they've done a, a phenomenal job of expanding. Uh, and I think they've continued to do it with the recession. It'd be interesting to see if, um, if lots of companies that do it for meal opportunities for uh, for dinner and for supper can do this then for the breakfast products as well definitely a big fan of Pret as well um, and yeah I probably haven't had anything from Pret in about a year as well so I can't wait for, for that to be possible again I think Jack what you were saying about um, choosing the right products and making sure that that core offering isn't cannibalized I think that's probably key and yes croissants are an important part of the offering but I think it's really the sandwich range and and the lunchtime offering I think where, where Pret has such a point of difference and they're not doing that 
yet. And I don't know if they're planning to. So I think that would be if you started having Pret branded sandwiches and baguettes and meatballs, uh, sarnies or whatever in, in, in supermarkets, I think then you are potentially really, really losing a reason for, um, for for shoppers to still be going into your stores. I think croissants and especially in Frozen, I think that's quite a sort of narrow way to to try that and I was also thinking I think Nando's is such a good example of a, of a brand that's done this really well I think Leon has also been really gutsy in um, pushing into retail and again because they focused on condiments and really great packaging and really great branding I think they have managed my impression is at least to um, offer a really authentic Leon experience without taking away a reason to visit a Leon store later because you're not getting the actual product you're buying. You're not getting the meal. You're just getting some accessories around it that allow you to sort of replicate some of that experience. So um, I feel like they have potentially created a footprint, those sorts of brands that that show how it is possible. But yeah, it'd be so interesting to see whether we are actually going to see um, some prep branded food to go Um products um at, at some point soon I, I guess it'll depend on how high streets recover and, and what footfall looks like once we um once we see restrictions lift jack it's been great to have you on the show thank you so much for joining us oh, thank you so much for having me and uh thank you for having me on on st patrick's day it feels uh feels like to be on the show as well and hopefully i'll be able to find somewhere that you'll do some takeaway guinness or something like that later on uh later on this evening we've loved it thank you that's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the food industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.